This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Inside Story on BFM 89.9. Good evening. You are with Lee Chui Lin and Sharad Kutin. Tonight is the mentality of publish or perish moving our universities to a loss of credibility. This comes amidst an ongoing controversy surrounding a publication on maritime, on Malay maritime history uh, by UPM, or historians at UPM, that was uh, criticised by a French historian. So we'll be exploring this issue and trying to find out what's wrong with our academic ecosystem. So tell us, do bad systems lead to bad ethics? Have you had to throw ethics out the window to fulfil a KPI? That number to call is 7773-2900. Send us a voice note or a WhatsApp at our U-Mobile number 018-789-8899. Tweet us at BFM Radio. This is Inside Story. It is 6.09. Okay, so um, I think that even if you've been seeing the story floating around, you may not have gone into the depths of it. <laughs> um, you know, sorry, maritime <laughs> <Time> joke. joke. Mm. <laughs> no, but um, okay, to get us back on track. Over the past week, you may have seen that UPM has been really under fire for allegedly falsifying historical facts in a research paper on uh, Malay maritime history or regional maritime history. Now, the accusations were brought up by a French historian, Serge Jardin, who pointed out several false claims in the paper. Um, he said that what was claimed to be a Malay jong was really a Fuchao pole junk. Um, the image used in the paper then was also inaccurately attributed to a display at the Museum Bahari of Jakarta and then the museum issued a denial. And to top it all off, it was revealed that the paper itself was published in a predatory journal. So there are several several things, I think, that are stacked up uh, in terms of criticism of the paper. But UPM has defended um, its researchers and its publication, saying that, well, saying that, and I'm quoting, the social sciences are up to interpretation. All of this, of course, has not stopped the public from scrutinising the lack of academic integrity uh, ostensibly on display, unethical research practices, historical manipulation, all of that. You know, Lynn, when this story first broke uh, and was based on actually something that was posted on social media, it was the um, the historian, the French historian, criticizing the paper uh, and, and and saying, making a kind of broad uh, sweep against, uh, broad, doing a kind of broad brush criticism of a local academic uh, culture. And I, for one, because I, I know some academics, um, I, I, I also heard you know people saying, yeah, you know, and they were doubling down and bagging on UPM and local historians uh, because based on a prejudice, not because they actually understood the specifics of the claims made in the paper. And I was very heartened to find that Malaysia Kini followed up the story actually interrogating the claims of the paper, going to the relevant stakeholders, talking to other academics. And that's an academic discussion. So the first response seemed very polemical, and it was based on a kind of rather dim view of all public universities in this country. And I think sometimes that's very unfair, Mm. uh, you know, because there are good academics in the country too, uh, coming from the public institutions. At the same time, you know, nobody was going to do the hard work of actually interrogating the the specific claims made in the paper, and that only happened with Malaysia Kini's pieces. Now, we are starting from that point, but really I think the broader thing that we want to talk about is not so much the, the paper itself, which has been really thoroughly covered, um, but the what it says about our academic landscape, um, what it says about whether we are because of this pressure to publish or perish. In other words, that academics are under pressure to publish, to have that kind of name recognition, prominence, uh, just, you know, to have that, whether that pressure is leading to ethical concerns, ethical issues um, within how we actually conduct research. And I think we're going to be delving into that in more detail, but we're also opening it up because not all of us work in academia. We don't. Um, do you think that bad systems lead to bad ethics? Have you uh, or have you heard um, of anyone throwing ethics out the window to fulfill a KPI? 
That number to call is double seven double three two nine hundred. Send us a voice note or WhatsApp zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine. Tweet us at BFM Radio. After this, we're going to be joined by Associate Professor Dr. Emma Mohammed, who is the Deputy Dean of Research and Innovation at the Faculty of Social Sciences and Humanities at UKM. Keep it here on Inside Story, BFM eighty nine point nine. Best flipping moments, BFM eighty nine point nine, the Business Station. It is 6.14 and you are listening to Inside Story with Lynn and Sherrod. We are talking today about um, the about the ethics of our academic landscape. Um, and this is coming because of recent stories and controversies surrounding a publication from UPM's historians about maritime history that was then debunked. And there have been all sorts of ongoing criticism since. And we're asking you, firstly, what do you think of all this? But also, do bad systems lead to bad ethics? Has that been your experience? And have you ever uh, or known of someone having to throw ethics out the window in order to meet a KPI? You can call 7733-2900, send us a voice note or a WhatsApp uh, at 018-789-888. Double nine. You can tweet us at BFM Radio. So joining us now, uh, we have Associate Professor Dr. Emma Mohammed, Deputy Dean of Research and Innovation at the Faculty of Social Sciences and Humanities at UKM. Dr. Emma, good evening. Hi, good evening, Lynn. How are you? Good, thank you. Yourself? Uh, well, it's Friday evening, so there's <laughs> nothing that I look forward to, but a very restful um, weekend ahead. Well, thank you for taking the time to be with us. Um, Now, when you first read of the controversy involving historians in UPM and criticism of their work, what was your first response and what larger issues did you think it signaled? Right. Um, I think first, um, let's just be clear that this case was certainly not the first of its kind. And um, controversy surrounding quality of academic articles um, ethical issues and predatory journals are not new in the academia setting. Um, still, it is very concerning, and there are many issues related to the business and ecosystem of the publishing industry. Now, I'm, um, I'm, sorry, please go ahead. Sorry. So, um, the original intent of academic journals um, is to provide reputable source, a platform for new knowledge through high-quality research findings that we hope to not just benefit scholars and students, but hopefully translate it to practical usage uh, in the industry and society. And unfortunately, what happens here, and um, I think this is uh, a clear case that um, capitalism and business-oriented models of journals uh, have entered um, the space of academia. And uh, we can see more and more uh, publishers are creating um, these academic journals just to generate income uh, because there is a demand from the academic industry to publish. Um, unfortunately, maybe some, many, maybe many researchers fall prey to this lure of you know, getting fast reviews, fast publishing, guaranteed publishing, and to be honest with you, I feel that predatory journals, this this kind of uh, you know um, business, is is almost like a scam uh, in 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 the academia industry. Um, you would not believe how many uh, emails I receive. I think on daily basis, emails coming in um, inviting me to submit to their journals, um, and these are really. Um, very highly curated emails, very, um, you know, uh, uh, very um, alluring, uh, inviting you to publish because, you know, they, they guarantee that the journal has high quality, um, you're able to get, you know, peer good peer reviews, feedback, and, and all sorts of promises. Um, that is, um, yeah, I, I think as academics, it's really, really easy to fall prey to these kinds of invitations. Um, so uh, I'm not entirely sure uh, what happens specifically for this case, but I think generally um, it points out to uh, the um, what's happening right now with the academic industry 
is this uh, that the business of uh, journals, academic journals, trying to make money and trying to, um, I guess, uh, get because there are demands and there are people who are, I guess, desperate um, to get published and easily fall prey to this kind of um, sort of scam, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. So, but then it's clearly a situation where you know two hands have to clap. I mean, there's the offer, but there's also the uh, decision to go ahead, right? So, I do want to point out some something that maybe our listeners might not be aware of. And in 2023, just last year, Nature magazine named Malaysia in a list of top countries with the highest number of retractions due to ethical concerns. Can you describe what these ethical concerns could have been like uh, and why Malaysian researchers seem so prone to them? Mm -hmm. um, well, Shara, there are many reasons why um, an article can be retracted um, from a journal. Um, it can be from honest errors made by the researchers themselves, maybe unintentionally mis, uh, you know, um, uh, misuse uh, or, or um, unintentionally reporting data um, or using in an incorrect way, uh, misleading analysis, probably making conclusions that is a bit generalizable uh, than what the findings actually pointed to, um, making over, um, over claim summaries um, through their findings. Uh, or maybe just uh, you know interpretation techniques. So I would say that you know the the the, the first one would be honest errors uh, made by um, researchers, um, uh, and there are other things that I think it would be a bit more serious um, reasons for articles being retracted are um, related to ethical misconduct itself. So for example, um, fraudulent data plagiarism, um, manipulating of image uh, or publish um, or data itself. Um, there's also uh, authorship issues. Um, maybe certain um, uh, authors did not agree to publish together or did not have consent of all the art, uh, authors um, when publishing the, uh, the articles. Um, and maybe there are some dispute among other authors themselves um, and uh, that might actually lead to uh, a report to the article that that, that 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 leads to the retraction of the articles. Um, there's also more serious uh, matter like peer review fraud, um, like maybe authors suggest for uh, reviewers with um, some conflict of interest uh, and re those reviewers would then provide highly um, positive peer review reports that would lead then uh, that article to be published. Um, but uh, you would question the quality of the findings um, in, in those papers. There's also um, uh, copyright issues like, for example, if a paper publishes figures or image without getting consent, uh, infringement of um, uh, intellectual properties like that. Um, there's also uh, research that I've seen that did not uh, disclose conflict of interest. Like for example, if your research is funded by a pharmaceutical com uh, companies and you, you, know, you publish the results and obviously um, they might, these pharmaceutical companies or funders might have a say in how you report things or how you select uh, your samples and, and how you report your findings. So that might be an issue as well. So you not disclosing, uh, you know, an, um, any conflict of interest might be an ethical reasons uh, to, to get retracted from the journal. And... Um, uh, also other kinds of ethics uh, violations, I feel like um, maybe unable to get uh, ethical approval because I think a lot of journals nowadays, they really require ethical approval um, number and uh, there, there might be, uh, you know, um, papers being published or research being conducted without getting that ethical approval first or maybe getting the ethical approval after um, uh, the findings have been uh, collected. So I think there are many reasons for um, an article uh, 
could be retracted um, from a journals and um, some of it are, you know, honest errors, but um, largely contributed to other ethical misconducts that's uh, quite serious. Yes. Now, as someone uh, with almost two decades of experience in academia yourself, when did publishing KPIs become central to advancement in our universities? Mm. Um, I think, uh, well, uh, publishing is actually very important part and responsibility uh, of, a, of a lecturer, of a, an academician. Um, and um, even before publishing uh, in journals was considered as a KPI, um, I mean, lecturers are expected um, to publish because it is part of um our responsibility to generate new knowledge, generate new data, and this would then um, circle back to our education and giving back to our students uh, in classes. So um, the ecosystem itself, actually the research and publishing is actually part of what we um, are, we are doing um, uh, as a lecturer. However, it was not until about, I think, between 10 to 15 years ago that universities have started introduce you know publications as the KPI and I think surely with KPI comes with a certain pressure to deliver uh, because it is a measurable results it's a comparable uh, indicator um, that you can uh, uh, I guess uh, measure um between your peers, against other universities, etc. So uh, what this may have led to is um, what uh, people say now is a publish to perish culture uh, that we, um, we hear uh, about uh, in, in universities. Um, I personally feel that um, the responsibility to publish in journals are highly misunderstood. Um, my personal motivation to publish um, does not come from trying to achieve KPIs or getting promoted. And I, I believe that um, no academician should uh, have this kind of motivation um, to, 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 to publish. Um, it, uh, it has to come from the genuine um, drive to an and honest uh, um, intention to educate and communicate new knowledge. For many, many decades, research and you know theories have mostly been focused and generated by the West, by Western scholars, by the global North. So what about us, right? Uh, I mean, what about data from um, Asian context. What about the voices of the global South? Don't we need to be heard as well, right? Um, so I believe that our contribution, whether it's theoretical, empirical, may not be the same with what we've probably learned in uh, you know our, our university years. In there might be different ways to explain things from our perspectives, from local wisdom. So we. As academicians, as researchers, I feel that we have the opportunity and responsibility to our society, to our you know, new generation, to communicate, to debate, to contest, theorize, um, you know, uh, and, and, and probably contradict knowledge from the West. And we can only do this by publishing data from our uh, context, data from our um, studies that's conducted in our society. So our local wisdom deserves uh, this attention. Um, and, and, and we know the, the only way to do this or, um, you know, the, the right way to do this is to publish in academic journals so that we get cited, we get read and we get, you know, that space and attention from not just academicians, uh, not just theorists, but also uh, you know um, uh, industries and and um, societies as well. And and I feel that should be the general motivation, not just 
KPI. But you know, obviously, KPI is there, and 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 it it needs to. I mean, it serves a purpose. You need a KPI to generate productivity in organizations, and I do understand that. I, however, I feel that the way it is being communicated to um, universities sometimes may be um, uh, uh, lost in translation or is probably misinterpreted um, by uh, uh, some, some academicians, yeah. We'll be continuing our conversation with Dr. Emma Mohammed from UKM. Uh, we are talking today about academic ethics in light of the ongoing stories surrounding UPM and its research. Keep those thoughts coming and keep it here, BFM 89.9. Beyond Frivolous Matters, BFM 89.9, The Business Station. It is 6.38 and you're listening to Inside Story with Lynn and Sherrod. We are continuing our conversation about academic ethics and um, how the push or mentality to publish or perish might be affecting that. Now, this is amidst the ongoing controversy around UPM UPM historians' publications about maritime history being criticised by a French historian uh, on Facebook, Sherrod, as you rightly pointed out. So anyways, um, this has just spilled over into all sorts of directions and we're asking you for your thoughts. In general, what do you think? But also, do you think that bad systems ultimately lead to bad ethics? Um, have you ever had to throw ethics out the window in order to meet a KPI? You can call double seven double three two nine hundred, send us a voice note or WhatsApp zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine, and tweet us at BFM Radio. We're continuing our conversation now with Associate Professor Dr. Emma Mohammed, Deputy Dean of Research and Innovation at the Faculty of Social Sciences and Humanities in UKM. So, Dr. Emma, thanks for staying on the line. Um, has the pressure of maintaining university rankings, both nationally and internationally, also grown over the years? And how has this affected the priorities of university administrators and academic culture? Um, is it all negative or are there upsides? Um, yeah, I think um, with university rankings, uh, there are some clear uh, indicators and clear comparable um, uh, results um, and it, it does put a little bit of pressure uh, uh, on universities to perform. And I think particularly with research universities, because we are expected to be, uh, you know, top three, top four um, um, throughout the country. And, and not just within the uh, Malaysia, but also performing uh, with uh, other uh, rival universities uh, in the region such as uh, in Singapore um, and, and Thailand. Uh, so yes, I would say that there are um, pressures uh, to, 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 to perform and to keep um, scoring so that we would be able to make that list and, and hopefully climb up uh, the ranking. However, I think recently, um, the Minister of Higher Education have uh, emphasized that ranking is not um, a uh, the only priority um, of Malaysian uh, universities and and high education institutions uh, right now, and there are many other things that we need to also look into to improve the education delivery, um, and um, maybe maybe. Uh, are not aware that um, university rankings are not just uh, derived by the number of journal um, articles or high impact um, publications or you know the the um, the amount of research research grants that you receive, um, but also is uh, being valued by um, alumni uh, um, success uh, industry. Um, reputation towards the university. Um, there's also the student's academic experience. So not just, uh, you know, by research, the quality of research and publications, but also all-rounded evaluation. Um, because at the end of the day, um, our core business is still um, teaching education. So we must ensure that um, our teaching quality is not compromised. Our quality of um, delivery, not just in terms of the knowledge, the facilities, 
um, and the students' uh, academic experiences, um, not just in the classroom, but also getting opportunities to um, uh, be uh, to travel abroad during their studies and get attached to different industries uh, during their um, industrial training. So things like this um, does play a, a huge role into academic rankings. So um, yeah, yes, uh, I feel that there are certain pressures um, um, on academic administration, especially to maintain that ranking. Um, but there are also, you know, there's a lot of indicators that go into um, um, making into that ranking. Yeah. Now, when it comes to the pressure to publish and university rankings, as we've been speaking about, is there a difference between how it impacts the humanities and social sciences versus the science and engineering fields, for instance? Mm. Um I think first and foremost, the number of journal uh, journals um, in the social science field is a lot less um, in terms of numbers compared to the sciences. Um, and so uh, in, in terms of that, we have lesser opportunities to get published in this um, high impact journals um, because there's less numbers uh, of, uh, of journals available. Um, and uh, the high impact journals is also um, determined by uh, different factors, uh, such as uh, citation index, um, uh, the, uh, the the impact factor. Um, so all of this is is being counted into the, the um, I guess uh, the ranking of the journals and. Um, determining uh, which tier uh, or quartile does these high-impact journals belong to. So, for example, if, let's say, there's 100 um, uh, social sciences journals are in are listed in the high-impact journals, so number one to tw number 25 would be in the tier one, number 26 to 50 will be in tier two, and so on and so forth. But let's say in sciences, they might, be more than that, like I would say more than double, maybe triple number of uh, journals in uh, listed in the high impact journals. So you get a lot more options uh, in terms of where you want to send your articles to be published. Um, but also at the same time, I find that um, science journals have um, uh, more editions in a year as compared to social sciences journals. So social sciences journals typically would have like four issues per year, maybe less than that. Um, but sciences journals, they normally um, go on a rolling edition. So every day there will be usually, um, every day or every week, there will be um, articles being published. So you get, uh, much faster results um, getting published um, and more opportunities uh, for you to get published uh, as compared to the social sciences journals. Yeah. So in the ongoing Malay junk history controversy that, uh, you know, you, University Putra used as their defence, the notion that the social sciences are up for interpretation. Does this stand up to scrutiny in this instance? Um, <laughs> I think there's a lot of a misconception about social sciences being just purely interpretations. Um, it's uh, it's more than that because uh, although it's social sciences, there is science in how we do things and how we interpret results. Um, this uh, approach might be different from different fields of social sciences. Um, like, for example, I'm not too familiar with how um, uh, historians uh, analyze their data or, you know, their method of um, collecting um, findings. Um, it, it, they are very different than my field uh, in media and communications. Um, but I think regardless of what your um, disciplines are in social sciences, there is the science 
to it. There is a science in the method that you are conducting your interpretations. There is a science into how you interpret your qualitative data. Um, there's there's also reasoning to how you interpret quantitative data. Um, as as long as you know interpretations do not alter facts or history, I think it's it's fine. You know, but then again, um, the way we understand history is is highly based on interpretations and records from those who documented those history, right? So um, in all research, whether it's science or social sciences, there is a sense of, there is a degree of biasness in it. Um, for example, the design of your research, the selection of your method, um, your sampling strategy, the, you know, the people who are conducting this research, the people who does the interviewing, the people who, who, who be, become the enumerators, people who uh, interpret these data, these are all human beings. And, you know, humans, we do have, uh, we come with a, you know, a set of um, uh, biasness in us. And I think, uh as long as everything, um, the interpretations is done with uh, justification, clear justification, transparently um, shown how the interpretation was made, um, I think uh, we need to uh, be open to different critiques, different, um, I guess, uh, conflicting ideas and uh, data that might not be what we have uh, actually learned so far. So as long as uh, it is clear how that interpretation is made and they are um, proper uh, um, objective as much, uh, you know, as, as objective that you can to interpret the that data, um, it's, it's, it's very, very crucial. Yeah. We're going to be closing off our conversation with Dr. Emma Mohammed from UKM very shortly. We are talking today about academic integrity and ethics, uh, especially with the ongoing pressure to publish um, and how that can impact, well, ethics. Let us know, do you think bad systems lead to bad ethics? Have you ever had the experience of having to throw ethics out the window in order to meet a KPI? You can call 7733-2900, send us a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899 and tweet us at BFM Radio. Bodacious, fabulous minds. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. It is 6.51 and you're listening to Insight Story with Lynn and Sherrod. And we are continuing our conversation about ethics in academia. And this is uh, really because of the publication uh, by UPM historians about Malay maritime history that has been criticised uh, firstly by a French historian. Subsequently, I think more things were uncovered about the, uh, the, the research the journal in which it was published, all of that has since emerged. So we're asking you for your thoughts. And we are uh, also, of course, still speaking with our guest, Dr. Emma Mohammed, Deputy Dean of Research and Innovation at the Faculty of Social Sciences and Humanities in UKM. So, um, Dr. Emma, just to finish off, um, if at the end of the day, it is important to assess the relative strengths or weaknesses of universities and academics, is it possible to use alternative measures um, that don't lead to distortions that have, you know, now we know, been flagged? Um, I think uh, what we need to consider is um, at, uh, evaluations of KPI that is more than a year, um, because I think KPI is set per year, and sometimes it's a bit unrealistic to um, to think that uh, a researcher can publish. Um, three or four articles um, as a corresponding author um, per year. Um, after all, I guess, how many research can you lead or can you conduct in a year? Um, and I'm talking about high quality research that has, uh, you know, high um, quality analysis and then, uh, you know, um, results to 
um, high quality uh, journal articles. Um, so I think realistically, we have to look at um, setting the KPI, not just uh, especially publication KPIs as not just uh, a yearly KPI, but maybe we need to be looking at a three year progress um, you know, um, having a research done um, within a year and then only churning and papers after that year. And as you all know, the 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 time uh, or the duration to publish uh, an article in a high impact journal does not take um, uh, is is not short. I mean. I've been waiting. Um, I have like three, four articles right now in in a high impact journal waiting to be reviewed, and it's already you know nearing six months. So it is almost unrealistic to expect um, a researcher to publish um, too many. Uh, maybe there are years where you are overproductive and you've got a lot of analysis and you've been um, you know lucky to get accepted. Um, by different journals, but there might be years where you are struggling or you are in the midst of finishing your research. So having a balance of that is very, very important. And I think it's very also important to cor correct the narrative of what uh, publish or perish, because um, if, we, if we continue to think uh, in a publication as... Um, you know, a survival, we are always going to be on a survival mode um, rather than having that uh, clear um, intention to why or motivation to why we need to publish in the first place. Yeah. Now, what would your advice be to early career researchers in Malaysia looking Looking at the possible damage this controversy has done to the reputation, in particular, of our public universities, what would you say to them? Um, I think keep your intentions pure. Um, don't uh, do it just because of you want to get you know um, known or in your field or get promoted. Do it for your students. Generate knowledge and uh, you know because you have to have responsibility with the the, the knowledge that you generated because it will impact generations to come. What you write, what you publish in these journals are going to be referred for years to come. So having that um, clear um, motivation and intention um, is really, really important when you are starting your uh, journey as uh, an early, early career researcher so that you're, you, you, you know why you're doing this. You need to make sure that you're clear with your why before doing anything. Yes, I think Do that will be my message. <laughs> Dr. Emma, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you so much, Lynn and Sharap, for having me. That was Dr. Emma Mohammed, uh, Deputy Dean of Research and Innovation at the Faculty of Social Sciences and Humanities at UKM, speaking to us um, in many ways about the, I think, giving us a sense of the landscape of local academia, particularly when it comes to the pressure to publish and how that intersects with the issue of ethics. Now, this came up, of course, because of the the news surrounding UPM and a paper that was published, um, a historical paper that was published on Malay maritime history that has subsequently been pretty heavily criticised. Let us know. Do you think bad systems lead to bad ethics? Have you ever had to throw ethics out the window to fulfil a KPI? Call us double seven double three two nine hundred. Send a voice note or WhatsApp zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine. Tweet us at BFM Radio. We have, um, I think, just a few. Time for a few brief messages. Um, Madiha, for example, saying, bad systems definitely lead to bad ethics. Systems that are run unethically devalue their actors. Where resources and remunerations are scarce, it becomes a dog-eat-dog -dog world and survival becomes the overarching goal. People will feel compelled to do what they feel is needed to get ahead. Yeah, Madiha, you're absolutely right. And, you know, the problems that we see here uh, with this public, publish or perish culture and, you know, the rankings is not... It's pretty globalized now, right? And so uh, if university administrators themselves are caught up in a structure that demands this of them and that 
kind of goes down the line. And I think uh, it's unfortunate uh, trying to kind of steer and pivot away from it. I think, you know, our guest, uh, Dr. Emma, pointed to some really important issues that get forgotten is that a lot of these publications are also controlled uh, in very specific ways, culturally and socially and politically and centered in the developed West. And uh, many voices from the South don't get heard either. And or difference and radical interpretations of economics and such also don't get heard because of the culture around some of these journals. So, yeah, there, there needs to be some sort of corrective without throwing the baby out of the bathwater, which was an incentive system to make sure that academics were also producing a quality work. So I think how do you balance the two? Well, tough one. Keep those thoughts coming. Again, um, do bad systems lead to bad ethics? Have you ever had to throw ethics out the window to meet a KPI? That number to call is double seven double three two nine hundred. You can send a voice note or WhatsApp to 018-789-8899. Tweet us at BFM Radio. We will be back for your messages and thoughts. Keep it here, BFM 89.9. Bole for Malaysia. Ha. BFM 89.9. The Business Station. It's 7.08 and um, I've been struggling actually a little bit to recap our show. Uh, this is Lynn and Sherrod, by the way, on Inside Story. <laughs> but um, our show today is a little bit complex because it the story it begins from itself is complicated. But essentially, UPM, you may have noticed, has been under fire for allegedly falsifying historical facts in a research paper on Malay maritime history. This was first brought up by a French historian um, and that in itself... So I think the initial reaction was very much informed by, to a certain degree, um, nationalistic pride, people not necessarily wanting to let um, someone else bag on us or bag on our researchers. But subsequently, there have been other things. Um, the image used in the paper was inaccurately attributed to a display in a museum in Jakarta, they have denied it. Um, the journal that it was published in was is a predatory journal, in other words, one with a low barrier to entry, among other things. So all of which to say, we wanted to talk about publish or perish, which is a phrase you might have heard, this sense that for academics, the drive to publish is seen as a drive to survive in many ways in their chosen career. So we are asking you for your thoughts on it and also whether you find bad systems do lead to bad ethics. You can call 7733-2900, send us a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio. So earlier on, we received a voice note. This is from Thanath. Well, if these uh, institutions, they do not produce research that are worthy of publications, then what exactly are they supposed to be doing? Tana, thank you for that. Um, I have a short answer and then I think a longer answer. The short answer is they're supposed to be teaching because after all, the, the institutions are universities, they're learning institutions. The people who are writing these papers aren't full-time researchers, they are often engaged in the act of teaching. So um, I, I hesitate to go so far as to say, if you're not doing this, then what are you doing? Because then uh, we're, we're selling our universities and our students short. So that's my long and short answer. Yeah, and it also I think comes from the fact that many of us don't understand how universities operate. We don't know that, in fact, some are can be primarily teaching universities where there is less of an emphasis on research. And then there are research-based universities, one that, where there's a high emphasis on research. And therefore, uh, what is demanded of academics in these two various types of universities will differ. I think, you know, as somebody who did spend, un unfortunately, too much time in a university, uh, I I'm a little clued into it. But I, even then, I'm not clued into the more recent developments, including the very real pressures that universities have to be financially viable, to yes. attract students, to uh, to attract grants, and the grants, you know, go on. Again, uh, these are the bread and butter of universities, right? And so there are multiple pressures on academics, none of which justifies poor academic research, none of it justifies uh, uh, unethical behavior, you know, uh, and certainly it will not go down well if your methodologies are just uh, poor. They're poor or your evidence is poorly put together and your arguments are weak. But there is a way in which we 
don't need to brand all public universities in the country, uh, you know, or tar all of them and all academics in them with a single brush when we're discussing this particular controversy. Now, Anon says predatory journals exist because unis chose to keep absurd KPIs in publishing. The university's different faculties encourage and give financial assistance for their staff to publish in this particular journal that the UPM paper published at. It is peer-reviewed, but the quality of reviewer is questionable. A look at its topic and its many issues will give you a picture. The topics are so diverse. This journal almost guarantees your paper being published because of the low barrier. Real and authentic high-impact journals are hard to get published in due to long waiting periods and more stringent standards. So academic Academics are forced to sacrifice integrity in order to in order to fulfill KPIs. Many tragic stories of young academics being let go or the contract not renewed due to not meeting KPIs by our, by our top research uni. Yeah, non, you know, uh, it's, uh, I think what is clear is that uh, the structure, which is something we want to come back to, because you can apply this question of bad structures, incentive structures, incentivizing poor or bad. Practices, right? Unethical practices. That's what we're trying to get at because it's, it's a lesson for all of us. And, you know, I think uh, anyone who comes comes away from this controversy thinking that this is a problem that is uh, the province only of Malaysian public universities or only of UPM or only of, of, you know, so on and so forth is actually missing the point. I think we all have something to learn about the way in which uh, our lives are structured uh, and our work is structured uh, potentially in problematic ways. So I have, um, I, I feel overall that this is a more nuanced conversation than the initial outcry would have us believe because the initial reaction to the thing was so um, kind of driven by social media, firstly. So um, as you pointed out, the initial takedown happened on Facebook. Subsequently, a lot of the discourse has been happening on TikTok and on Twitter and, and the like. And I mean, look... Social media has its place, um, it has its users, but nuanced conversation is never going to be a strength. And I think that um, even as we're talking now and trying to trying to understand the balance between the need to publish versus having that pressure you into publishing um, nonsense, I don't think it's even that simple, even as a either or, right? Because if there are very few high impact journals, but at the same time you're saying that people need to publish in order to make it, then if I have spent, I don't know, uh, 10 years of my life investing in this notion that I'm going to have an academic career, and now you're telling me that my contract might not renew because I haven't published, but there are only, I don't know, some high-impact journals, you know, the, the, the pressure kind of stack up. I'm not suggesting that that means that you should then be unethical. I'm merely saying that it's tough. I think most of us would acknowledge it's tough. Yeah, and also I think it comes back to what the universities want to achieve at the end of the day. Yes, you want quality teaching. Yes, you want quality research. Yes, you want to be known globally so that uh, you can attract foreign students, which also go into your 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 standing as a as a university. In fact, I think uh, diversity of the student body is one of the I think one of the items right in deciding in giving you points uh, as a as a university. So there are all these uh, reasons uh, and criteria and and university struggle. In this case, I. I also think, Lynn, what happened was it, it fell into the trap of being part of the old divisions, um, long-standing divisions we have in this country, the antipathy towards public universities, the antipathy towards a certain type of academic. Uh, and, and Even the, the research content, actually. Yeah. yeah. And so, so people who are not historians, who have no base, they don't have subject matter a basis for their critique or, or even signing on to the bandwagon, the anti-UPM bandwagon, jumped on it uh, without, you know, uh, asking themselves, did they know enough about the, that area? Why would they believe a French historian over a local one? I mean, neither one should be believed just because of who they are. Neither one should be believed automatically, yeah. yeah. Um, Norhan says, as an academician and doctorate student, yes, getting published is very important. It's akin to eating and sleeping as a human. As long as the journal is credible and undergoes stringent peer reviews and comply to the highest ethical practices, then UPM should not have worried of any attacks from netizens. Yeah, I think 
part of the problem seems to be that uh, in this particular discussion, Nohan, is that UPM itself, uh, perhaps its strategy of defending or responding to uh, to the the outcry was far too quick and defensive and maybe something more considered should have happened. But it's very hard to say. I mean, I think, uh, you know, institutions tend to protect their own. It's just a kind of default setting they have. Um, but at the same time, there was this other thing, and I would have liked to hear from historians, not historians with an axe to grind, but I mean, you know, real historians come in and tell us what is happening in the field of research of this period of antiquity in the region, right? And say, what are the debates? And what is the evidence that can be found, what can't be found, what level of speculation is going on, and so on and so forth. Rather than just dump in, rather than just move into that area where we're just engaging in a kind of polemic, because we already know, as some people feel, they already know better, they know the other person is um, of low quality, you know, and so on and so forth. Keep those thoughts coming. Um, we're asking you, do bad systems lead to bad ethics? But also, do you have thoughts on the um, current, the controversy surrounding UPM research? It's been in the news. You can call 7733-2900, send a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio. Brainy, fancy material. BFM 89.9. It is 7.19 and you're listening to Inside Story with Lynn and Sherrod. Um, we are concluding our conversation about ethics, particularly in an academic setting, and asking you, do you think bad systems can lead to bad ethics? You can call 7733-2900, send us a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899 and tweet us at BFM Radio. Uh, I actually want to talk about some of the folks who are not talking about academics, um, instead pointing to other industries. So Daniel says, um, whenever people need to achieve a certain thing, they will do anything to achieve it. And, it, and then at some point, they may not realise that they were being unethical in order to have what they wanted. Hence, I always prefer to say, do your best, rather than you must achieve that. Unfortunately, I think Asians tend to be achievement-oriented rather than do your best-oriented. And I think it's time for us to change. Yeah, there may be, you know, Daniel. I think that um, clearly KPIs is like a, I, you know, the, I, I don't remember when KPIs was actually an expression that was used in work life, but it's become the thing we talk about KPIs for, you know, cabinet ministers, we talk about KPIs. I mean, we here in BFM, we have KPIs too. Yes. Everybody does, right? Uh, the question- no, but how we talk about the KPIs do matter, right? Because, mm. um, because, uh, okay, how much we talk about KPIs and how much of that is within our control. So let's use the BFM example, or in fact, many companies. Um, a lot of your work is determined by your work. Um, sure, you can say office politics and the like, but the truth of it is that if you're doing good work, then you're doing good work and it's there to be seen and others can see it. Um, but in this case, if I am doing good work, but then it passes on to something that is out of my control, in other words, do I get published or not amidst the hundreds or thousands of other submissions, then I think the conversation about KPI shifts a little bit, you know? Yeah, I mean, I I, I think the, um, I mean, what Daniel, you seem to be saying is that in motivating people, right, that the KPI is, the, is, is a guide rather than a hard uh, checklist that needs to be, um, you know, achieved. What is scary, I think, for maybe young academics or people in working your field, Daniel, is that they might feel that their jobs are on the line, that if they don't actually meet those KPIs, it's a, it's a really... It's a blank check to their bosses to, uh, to uh, you know, sack them. And so this becomes, I think, the, where the pressure to do something, perhaps not completely unethical, but not to be encouraged. I mean, something... Ah, so, yeah, not to be encouraged is a good description because Madiha is back to say, um, Madiha who works in healthcare. In healthcare, there are KPIs in clinics to see patients within a set number of minutes. Is it ethical to cut short a consultation for a patient who just wants reassurance on a non-medical concern when there are others waiting for their turn? KPIs can be aspirational, but only as far as those evaluated are given the tools and support to achieve them. Yeah, Maria, I think this is completely right. I mean, you hear these such a good gr- example. Yeah, because I hear, um, you know, these stories of really good doctors, uh, but the wait is long, you know, because they are spending as much time they think is needed for each of those patients. They're not working towards a KPI that tries to industrialize or mechanize or automate uh, a doctor's response to a patient. Yes, um, which 
again, is actually a very important relationship. It's a very important conversation. And the notion of mechanising that actually is really problematic. Gerald says, executives in um, the UK, the US, EU, often are set or set themselves diversity KPIs, which are too easy. You appoint a female to the board, you achieve your KPI. Voila, five million bonus. So, Gerald, uh, you're entering this, this very different territory, I think. But uh, in, in terms which, of KPIs, <laughs> yeah, uh, and in terms of at least fe- female uh, or representation or representation of women, where they have historically been underrepresented. So, uh, but but I think Gerald, if I. Uh, if I'm understanding you correctly, that in some senses what you might be saying also is that appointing a single woman to a board um, and setting yourself that standard. So saying, oh, we're going from zero to 10%, you know, (laughs) congratulations to us all. Um, If you're saying that that's not enough, that's fair. Yeah, that may be. But, you know, I think there's also an implicit criticism here of a kind of way in which um, these KPI systems are gamed, right? And so maybe in in the case in your example, Gerald, not so much an attack on women and uh, diversity uh, quotas, but more of uh, a recognition that these KPIs can be gamed and and then produce tokenism, as Lynn suggested. Um, Okay, a couple of points about People doubting everything. (laughs) W says, I don't know about the intent of the fault in the interpretation, but now I'm questioning also, have we been wrong in previous historical data that we claimed is reviewed and reputable? Now, what if the essence of the history we thought we knew and stood for was also wrong? Wow, W. Just Existential over, crisis. crisis. Yeah, it's, and also a big one. And this is why it's good to hear from professional historians that put these debates in context. I think that would be wonderful to hear. But I am so happy that Malaysia Kini did the hard work of taking what claims were being made in that paper and analyzing them, going to the you know various stakeholders, going to like the museums and, and so on and so and and doing that hard work. Because I think a lot of people don't want to do the hard work. They just rely on prejudice. And on the basis of the prejudice, they were willing to um, you know convict or, uh, or accuse those historians at UPM of wrongdoing. I mean, they might have been wrong. I'm not saying they were right. I'm just saying that people were too quick to do that, n- not using evidence but just using prejudice. So we have um, Anon who's back. We've had a number of anonymous listeners, um, but just to say, this is a listener who works uh, in academia, and and I think that's where it's coming from. Um, Among historians themselves, there are debates on methods and interpretations, even when it involves a concrete physical thing. The debate in Malay historiography regarding the real date of and the way to read the Tringanu inscription, uh, Batu Bersurat Tringanu, is one famous example. And at stake isn't just the exact date of when Islam came to Tringanu, but the different dates give different understandings of the level of Islamicity these people had. For example, were they Hinduized Muslims? Was Islamization already advanced and so on? This will always turn into the prejudices and biases of both camps of historians. The glee and blind defensiveness in both camps in the Malay Jong case reflect this. Yeah, so, you know, again, what Anand, you point... Thank you very much for that. Uh, Uh, This is, I, I think, such a great and solid example of of the difficulties in talking about history. Yeah, and also that, in fact, history is often uh, a series of debates and uh, a series of interpretations, sometimes based on evidence, but sometimes based on a new understanding of how things operate, right? So it's very rich. And uh, the polemics, though, there because you know societies are full of uh, are polemical by their nature and intellectual debates tend to uh, flow in that direction too, I think. I'm not satisfied with that. I, I understand it. I think it's a very realistic take on on it. Um, but reading what Anon has to say, I, I think I there is a part of me that feels dissatisfied with polemic becoming such a big part of what should be. I think people think of academic uh, academic work as above and beyond that, and it clearly is not. Maybe this is just me facing up to it. Because they're human beings, right? Yes, but of course. But more importantly is sometimes, and this I think is where the UPM junk, Malay junk uh, you know, story goes, it goes back to uh, a sense of needing a nationalist, um, a nationalist ideology that 
wants to read back in history, and this is not unique to Malaysia. You just have to go to India today uh, to, oh, you don't have to even go to India, just to read, you know, the debates that are happening over history in India, and they have practical implications, right, including the, the, the now construction of the Ram Mandir over the Babri Mosque, uh, Babri Masjid, and, you know, the attacks on on, uh, on scholars like Romela Tapar. I mean, you can go on and on. Many countries have this. I mean, they do, sometimes history comes too much alive and it's not just cool heads that uh, participate in these conversations. Just to close off, SRA says, we need to acknowledge that our higher education is in crisis. Our obsession with rankings has led to the deterioration of ethical consideration in our universities because it's about career survival. Unfortunately, our academics are measured using criteria that's out of their control, which makes them more desperate to do whatever they can to achieve that KPI. Yeah, um, I think universities themselves have to have this tough conversation because it does impact students, right? At the end of the day, the students are going to be impacted when universities get the priorities wrong and uh, don't put uh, uh, front and center the most important things, which is quality education. We've been talking today about ethics, uh, particularly in academia. Thank you, everybody, for getting in touch. Um, if you missed our interview with our guest earlier, it was a wide-ranging one. I would suggest that you listen to the podcast. Keep it here, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.